Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Sin is Lurking, Christ is Reigning. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel, turning your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel 13. This is a very, very tragic chapter, but it's one of several tragic chapters that are related to King David. In Galatians it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever man sows, that will he also reap. The reality that what you sow is what you reap. The problem that people have with that is they think that what you sow is what you reap happens right away and it happens in like kind. But it happens later and it's more than you sowed. That's the very nature of sowing. Time passes between sowing and reaping. And when it's time to reap, you get much more than you sowed. That's true in blessing. It's true in farming. It's true in life. It's true in sin. Time passes between sowing and reaping. And when it's time to reap, you get much more than you sowed. And here in this passage, we're going to see that. It was, of course, in chapter 12. And before that, the Bathsheba incident. And then in 12, the rebuke by Nathan. And Nathan comes to him and says, you're not going to die. uh, But there are going to be consequences as a result of this. If you're familiar with the scriptures already, you know that David loses four of his sons. One has already died, the baby died. And in this passage, he's going to lose Amnon in this chapter. It is very, very grievous to see this. But the challenge for us again and again is to do this. When we read this, those of us who are familiar with the Word of God, those of us who have some background, know this. We look at this, the passage this morning, And there's probably no one in the room this morning who doubts the truth of this passage. What we're going to read in 2 Samuel 13. That this really did happen. There really was an Amnon. He really did have a brother named Absalom. Really did have a sister named Tamar. He really did die. Most of us don't, though, then make the application that the wages of sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. And the desperate, desperate need that we have of the Savior, and the desperate need we have to stay close to that shepherd because of the grave consequences of sin, of reaping more than what we sowed. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word as we turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel 13? 2 Samuel 13. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Tamar means palm tree in Hebrew. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed difficult to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, 
that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house, and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her, since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. But she said to him, No, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. He would not listen to her. Then he called his young men who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment, which was on her robe, on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent. My sister, he is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother's Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go. But he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have not I myself commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule, and fled. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would help us. That it is so easy, we acknowledge, to read this and gain additional Bible knowledge without any change in our own heart any amendment to our life, any concern of staying close to the shepherd. We pray, God, that you would bless us, for we do not know what comes this coming week by your good hand, by your providences, that there may be a lesson in here indeed for each of us that we desperately need. And so we ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear. We pray, God, that you would help us, that you would have pity and mercy upon us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Please be seated. There are, there is a passage here that is, it's a remarkable passage. And oddly enough, there's a couple of things going on here by way of introduction. One is that this is a demonstration, first and foremost, of the Tenth Commandment. That's what's going on here. It's coveting something you don't have. It's coveting something you don't have. And the other thing about this is that this is virtually almost like zooming in a little closer to what happened between David and Bathsheba. It is phenomenally similar to the David and Bathsheba incident. It's pretty chilling how close it is to his own father's situation. In fact, the conversation that occurs here between Amnon and Tamar may have been the very conversation that occurred between Bathsheba and David when he called her over to the palace. We don't know, but it seems like it's very possible that it could be very close to that. The verse 1 in this chapter says it's Amnon and that he is, that Absalom is a son and Amnon is a son and there is a sister named Tamar. Amnon is a son of David. Absalom is a son of David. These men, I want you to hear this, these men grew up with King David as their father. They grew up with a man who, from his youth, knew and loved God, was anointed probably while he was a teenager, took on Goliath while he was a teenager, became king. They saw, they, they heard about him, if they didn't see it, they, they knew about how gentle and how submissive he was to King Saul when King Saul tried to kill him. And yet what a bold warrior he was. They knew what a godly man he is, how he was a man after God's own heart. And by this time, it seems very likely he would have already written some of the Psalms. They would have attended worship with their dad, King David, on numerous occasions. I want you to hear this. There's nothing in this scripture to indicate that King David suspected that either of his sons, Absalom or Amnon, were of this nature. They are good examples of the visible church. They're good examples of the visible church. We just, God himself gives us opportunity, listen, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith, to take your spiritual pulse. And here Amnon had an opportunity to take his spiritual pulse and he failed miserably. And Absalom had an opportunity to take his spiritual pulse and he failed miserably. And we ourselves must recognize that as well. There's an interesting character in here. It's verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Well, maybe you recognize the name Jonadab from your reading. Jonadab is one of those men we actually looked at last week in the preaching in which Jonadab is one of the men in First Chronicles who takes on additional giants, the relatives of Goliath. Jonadab is one of those men. Who t- and Jonadab is actually the one who takes out the... Um, the one with the six fingers and the six toes. He's apparently a very good warrior. But the fact that he's a good warrior doesn't make him a worshiper of God. When he hears of the concern, and what is the concern? Amnon has made himself ill, it says in verse 2, because he's coveting something. What is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife nor his son, nor his daughter, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. What is coveting that? It is making yourself sick over the fact that you don't have it. It's fixating on it. There's nothing wrong with wanting something that somebody else has or wanting something like somebody else has. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's everything wrong with how it affects you. Does it now affect your life? People now know that there's something wrong with you because you're just, you just can't even put a smile on your face? Well, that's exactly the case here. And Jonadab recognizes that there's something wrong here. And Amnon says what it is to him. But Jonadab says, verse 3, he gives him the counsel. He says he's a shrewd man. And he tells him to lie to his father. That's what he tells. Pretend to be sick. Lie to your father. The question for us as we read this is, who are your counselors? Amnon looks to Jonadab. Listen, Jonadab is an excellent warrior. We're given that information elsewhere in the scriptures. He's a mighty man of war. He's not a good counselor. He's not a good counselor. And the question is, who are your counselors? 
and what is their walk with God like? Who are your counselors, and what is their walk with God like? Look at what he says to him. He says, O son of the king, you can almost hear Satan speaking that. O son of the king, because you can see that that would be Satan saying something to you. We are all children of the Most High God and children of the king. But he says, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And he goes on and tells him that it's his sister, that he, he wants basically to have his sister. And so Jonadab goes on and tells him to lie in verse 5. But he's warning something that he can't have. Turn back in your Bibles just a chapter two, Second Samuel 12, verse 7. Second Samuel 12, verse 7. The second part of that verse is Nathan telling David. He says, are you with me? Second Samuel 12, verse 7. It is I who anointed you, Nathan speaking for God. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. That's what King David would surely say to Amnon. And that's what God says to all of his children. So when we think we have a basis for coveting, we are always wrong. We are always wrong when we think we have a basis for coveting. And here Amnon thinks he does, and Jonadab encourages him in it. And we can find somebody to encourage us in our wrong thinking, in our self-centeredness, in our coveting, in our sin. Amnon is following in his father David's footsteps. Keep your finger right there and listen to the Word of God in James chapter 1. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that it's so evidently written by one author because it says the same thing over and over again over periods of centuries in between. James chapter 1, writing to the church, he says, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. He's fixated on something and he can't get it out of his mind. Or rather, it would be better to say he refuses to get it out of his mind. Because he could get it out of his mind, but he refuses to. Verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And what happens with David and Bathsheba? The baby dies. Uriah dies. More children are going to die. What happens with Amnon and Tamar? Amnon dies. And then later Absalom dies. Sin brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. We must warn concerning the consequences of sin in this life and in the life to come. We are surrounded by people who don't get it. Genetic family members, people in the visible church, and certainly everyone out there in the outside in the, in the world. Look in your bulletin right there in the bulletin under the word preaching there, under the title of the preaching. A.W. Pink, in 1918, 100 years ago, saw the great need for warning people about the truth of God. Jonadab should have warned Amnon this will end badly. Joab later on tries to warn David not to number the people. When David gets swelled with pride and wants to number the people, and Joab pulls him aside and says, don't do it. This will end badly. Jonadab doesn't do that. Arthur Pink says, we must warn those around us. What is needed today is a scriptural setting forth of the character of God. That's what we said last week. What we need to know and embrace is the nature of God, the commandments of God, and the providences of God. Arthur Pink says, we a scriptural setting forth of the character of God. What, by scriptural setting forth of the character of God, he means this. God as God is, not as God as you would want him to be. God as God is. A scriptural setting forth of the character of God. His absolute sovereignty. If it happened to you, it happened by God's hand. His absolute sovereignty. There's not a maverick molecule in the universe. I was talking with Kristen and 
just this past night or two ago, uh, together with Louie, they're getting married in just a month, less than a month, getting married. And I said to her, you know, the most remarkable thing that you can tell a wife, the most remarkable thing you can tell a wife in regard to marriage is that when you disagree with your husband, you don't need to argue with him. Because Louie's hand is in the hand of the, his heart, is in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord can turn it like a channel of water wherever he will. A wife needs to hear that. My husband's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and I can turn it like a channel of water wherever I will. And obviously a husband back to his wife in the same manner. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what that means. We need to preach that sovereignty and understand it. We need to tell our neighbors and friends and family members about it. His ineffable holiness the reality that it's so far beyond us. What does that mean? It means he's serious about sin and he is holier than we can imagine. He takes it very seriously. We read earlier in, in uh, uh, Second Samuel of Uzzah touching the ark and God struck him dead just for touching it. That's what that means. He's very holy. His inflexible justice. What does his inflexible justice mean? It means this, that the worst example, the best example, if you will, of God's justice is not Sinai. His best example in Scripture is not the flood, and that's a very good example. His best example is not Sodom and Gomorrah. His best example is Christ on the cross. That when it is his own son, he does not change his holy standards. The wages of sin is death. His inflexible justice, and we are surrounded by people who think, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. My good's going to outweigh my bad. Or he's going to be okay. God's going to, God's going to just say, come on over here. Everybody, everybody come on in. That's not what the Bible teaches. And Arthur Pink says, we need to tell people what the Bible teaches. His unchanging veracity, that is, his truth is always the same. What is needed today is a scriptural setting forth of the condition of the natural man. His total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you can get. It means everything you do is mixed with sin. His spiritual insensibility. We come into the world, we're insensitive to the things of God. His, inve- his inveterate hostility to God. We come into the world enemies of God. We come into the world enemies of God. The fact that he is condemned already and that the wrath of a sin-hating God is even now abiding upon him. We come into the world condemned. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. That's how we come into the world. What is needed is a scriptural setting forth of the alarming danger in which sinners are. Nobody told Amnon, this will end badly for you. And when I say badly, I mean really badly. We need to tell people, this is going, where you're headed, this is going to end very badly. I saw a sign one time about an electrical, I don't know what it was, but it was some kind of a big box electrical box on the ground. And outside was chain link fence all around it. And a big sign saying, warning, do not touch. And it said underneath it, it said, if you touch this, you will die and it will hurt very badly while you're dying. That kind of grabbing people by the lapels and saying, this isn't, don't, don't take this lightly. If you touch this, you will die and it will hurt very badly while you're dying. The alarming danger in which sinners are in the indescribably awful doom which awaits them, the fact that if they follow only a little further their present course, they shall most certainly suffer the due reward of their iniquities, as Amnon does. What is needed today is a scriptural setting forth of the nature of that punishment which awaits the lost, the awfulness of it, the hopelessness of it, the unendurableness of it, and the endlessness of it. Jonadab was there. Hear this. Jonadab was there. And Amnon felt good about himself because Jonadab was a qualified counselor on some subjects, like warfare. But he was not a qualified subject, a qualified counselor on the subject of leave your sister alone. We need to find people who are qualified to counsel us in the matters of our life and the whole word of God. And Jonadab failed miserably. Back in our passage in 2 Samuel 13, He should have, Jonadab should have counseled him regarding the 10th commandment. That's what he should have done, but he did not. Look at, this is not the first time, look at Genesis 4. We think of the fall itself in Genesis 3, but look at Genesis 4, 
very quickly, back with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel offer their different offerings, you remember, and God honors that of Abel, but not that of Cain. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was the keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock of the fat portions. So it's clearly an animal sacrifice. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. There was something, listen, there was something about the nature of God that Cain didn't like. Something about the nature of God that Cain, he learned about it, but when he learned about it, he didn't like it. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Some translations say lurking at the door. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. And it will be different for different people at different times, and it will be different for you at different times in your life. And Amnon was not prepared for this. This was a one he should have been prepared for. When Solomon writes the Proverbs, remember Proverbs is written primarily, it's written in the singular, Solomon has lots of sons. But it doesn't say to my sons. It keeps using the word my son, my son, singular, over and over again. Most scholars believe that he's writing to the next king, Rehoboam. He's writing this for the next king. And he warns him over and over again about purity and about how easily you can go astray in regard to matters of the heart and of lust. But Amnon hadn't read that. Hadn't been written yet, I understand. But he hadn't read the other things from Moses and, and though he wasn't hanging out with the right fellowship. You become like the people you're around. But we discover here that there is a coveting here and he doesn't, he's not prepared for it. The Bible has told him about it already, but he's not prepared for it. But he becomes fixated on it. Amnon becomes fixated on it. He refuses to turn his attention to the manifold other blessings. What other blessings does he have? He's a prince of a great king. And we just really can't translate that very well. It means he has everything he wants. He has everything he wants in every real sense, or the possibility of everything he wants. He is in the upper 1% or 2%, if you will, of the people of Israel. Things are good for him, and he has a bright, bright future. Friends, he has whatever you would want, he has, but he fixates on what he does not have. This has happened in other places in the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings, and it's happened in your life, and it may well happen again. 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. It's Ahab, the king, who is coveting Naboth's vineyard. The king over Israel. Couldn't he go and find all kinds of lands and vineyards, both in Israel and outside of Israel, if that's what he wanted? Of course he could. But there's one right next door to him, and he won't be happy unless he has that. 21, verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, after Ahab had asked for it, Naboth turned him down. The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He's like, no, no, this is not really even mine. I'm kind of a steward. It was given to my fathers, and I need to pass it on. Verse 4. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. And his wife Jezebel came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and you are not eating food? And he clarifies, It's just because there's a vineyard over here that I want. Children do that all the time, and wise parents know to turn their attention to the manifold blessings they do have. You can be a young boy and want to play Little League Baseball this afternoon, got a game, you're all with your uniform and your new glove, and you're ready to go, and it rains. You can start crying over that, but a good dad's going to explain, well, no, rain is a great thing. 
the God of the universe is sovereign over rain. And let's count our many blessings that we are able to play baseball. And let's look at those baseball cards one more time or whatever else it is. We can turn our attention towards something else. Amnon desperately needed that. We need that in our lives. It's called godly fellowship. He who walks with wise men will be wise, and the companion of fools suffers much harm. It's called the word of God. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living and active. It's also called the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes and brings to our remembrance the things that we know to be true. It's also called the Lord's Day, that one day out of seven we really stop and drink in the nature of God, the commands of God, the providences of God, and we learn how to give thanks for what's happened in the past and how to govern and to pilot through what's going to happen to us in the future. Ahab became fixated on it and became sullen. If you remember, Haman does the same thing in the book of Esther with Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow to him. And Haman is over all the other princes, it says. He's number two in the land. And it's a big land (laughs) under the king. He's number two, but he's not happy because Mordecai won't bow to him. Brothers and sisters, there's probably something for all of us, even right now, certainly recently, and very likely in the soon near future, something that we want, that the God of the universe is looking to see how we'll respond. How will we respond? I counseled somebody one time who found out that the person they loved didn't love them back. And I said to this person, everything you loved about that person was something about God. Everything you loved about that person was something about God. Spend some time, meditate on that. Think about everything you loved about that person, and God is like that and more, and has not spurned your love. We must learn to see the beauty of our Creator and enjoy the creation, but recognize that it all rests in the Creator. Amnon had not done that. Back in our passage in 2 Samuel 13, Someone should have told him, remember your dad. Jonadab tells him to lie to his dad. What Jonadab should have said to him is, remember your dad? The things were going really well for him. He had had a really challenging life, Amnon. But then the Lord pulled him through all of that. He became king over Judah. Then he became king over Israel. Then he became a guy that built a house and everything in uh, his palace in Jerusalem. Things are going really well for your dad. And then the Bathsheba incident. Jonadab should have said, remember your dad. 1 Corinthians 10 says exactly that. It says, remember the things that have happened in the past. And when you know that negative things have happened in the past, avoid those things. Listen, I'll read just a few verses. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us. The various things that happened to the children of Israel is what he's talking about there. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Amnon is craving an evil thing. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the same, try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We ourselves must drink that in and remember these things. There is a real concern here back in our passage in chapter 13, verse 9. She takes a pan. Her father tells her to go to the house. And so she goes. She's very innocent as far as we can tell from the scripture. Tamar is very innocent in this. Verse 9. She took the pan, dished it out before him, but he refused to eat. And he says, have everyone go out from me. Now that was an area of concern. I'm not blaming Tamar here. I'm not doing that. I'm just simply saying that was a bit of a red flag. Now again, we're reading this from hindsight. But it was a bit of a red flag. The point is we ourselves need to be alert. We need to be alert. And that was a little bit of a concern, though, that he says, have everybody leave the house. She certainly knew that there was no reason for her to be in the house alone with him. Can a man take coals to his chest and not be burned? This was a a bit of an alarm here. 
But the next thing is a great alarm. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. She should have, I am now saying, she should have stopped at that point. How often it is that Satan leads us in a direction that we should not go, but he does so step by step. Satan knows it's difficult to get you from point A to point E, but he can get you from point A to point B, and from B to C, and from C to D, and D to E. Satan, who's been a warrior from his youth, knows that. So when we begin to recognize, wait a minute, this looks like it's headed to point E. We need to stop in our tracks right there. And she does not. Again, the overwhelming responsibility here is on Amnon, but there there is some sense here that the alarms should be going off at this point. And we ourselves need to be praying to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, make me sensitive to holiness. Help me see the good and the evil around me. Cause me to be alert. That is walking in the Spirit, praying without ceasing that God would give us a spiritual sensitivity to the things around us. Look at verses 11 and 13. It's almost, as I said earlier, it could be the very script between Bathsheba and David. When she brought them to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me... Where can I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. You couldn't ask for a better warning than that. That's as crystal clear a warning. Jonadab utterly failed. But here she is telling him like it is. She's telling him the truth. Not only is this going to go badly for me, and that would be worth it to say that truth, but she says this is going to go badly for you. This is good. Brothers and sisters, listen. When you hear somebody giving you advice, imagine your ears getting bigger. As soon as you recognize it's advice, I'm not telling you you have to do it. It might be bad advice. But as soon as you recognize, wait a minute, this person is giving me advice. We need to imagine our ears getting bigger. And that can be from the normal sources that we think of. An elder, a head of household, somebody like that. It could be that. But it could be anybody. It could be a stranger. It could be a child. But as soon as you realize somebody is giving you advice, it stop and imagine your ears getting bigger and contemplate that for a moment. God is able to speak through the mouth of an ass and save a man's life. And we ourselves must recognize that God has no shortage of ways of getting truth to us. And here he is. He's giving great truth to Amnon. Amnon, who's going to die. But he's given him great truth right now. And we wonder, is this close to the very encounter between David and Bathsheba? Well, then, of course, he doesn't listen to her. And then, of course, he violates her. And then verse 15. If verse 15 is not marked in your Bible, you need to mark it. That's a verse you need to memorize. And I encourage you to have a Bible. I want you to know I have several Bibles. I have two Bibles that I never mark in. I have two Bibles I never mark in so that I can always read them fresh and, and, and nothing in there distracts me whatsoever. But I do have two other Bibles in particular that I mark up a great deal. I have two study Bibles that I mark up a great deal. This verse is incredibly powerful of the Holy Spirit breaking through and saying, look, everything that you're imagining in that mirage of covetousness is not only a mirage, But there's a sourness to it. There's a sourness to it. Look at verse 15. A sourness if you you get it wrongly. There's nothing wrong with wanting certain things and then later achieving them in life. That's not what happens here with Amnon. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And we see this just most pathetic thing, not only for Tamar, but for himself. That here he is, now he realizes, I am one of the fools. And he's aware, even in this moment, that this is going to go badly for him. He's not going to, by God's grace, he doesn't kill Tamar. And the word is going to get out. Tamar, of course, immediately tells Absalom. The word is going to get out. People have some knowledge of this. We need to know this verse and know this principle of the illusory nature, the mirage, I call it, of coveting and of love and of trying to bring those things about in the flesh rather than waiting upon God and pleading with God 
to resolve our concerns. And then verses 16 through 19, he has her thrown out very ignominiously, and she is just, she finally puts ashes on her head, and she goes out weeping. This is that vortex of sin upon sin upon sin, very similar to David uh, murdering Uriah, now trying to, it's just getting worse and worse, and, and he's added more disgrace to himself by how he treats her after the event. And what we remember is that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, once they sinned, went through the four things that we often do, fear, flight, denial, and blame. And none of those helped. Fear, flight, denial, and blame, they don't help. But the gathering demoniac in Mark chapter 5 knew the one thing to do when you realize your desperate condition, and that's run toward Christ. Run toward Christ. The gathering demoniac is out of his mind. Chains can't even bind him. He lives among the dead people in the graveyard and cuts himself. But when Christ comes on the horizon, he has the limited sense to run toward Christ. To run toward Christ. Wherever you are in your vortex, your downward vortex of sin, we can stop and run toward Christ. Verse 20, Then Absalom, her brother, said, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And she acknowledges what's going on, and so he tells her to keep silent, and she lives with him. Verse 21, Now when King David heard of these matters, he was angry. Now this is a brief verse, and we don't know what he did. I want to be clear here. There's two things here. David is head of household, And he's king of Israel. And somehow he doesn't deal with this, it would appear. Somehow, I I don't want to beat him up here because it's a brief passage. But it looks like he doesn't deal with it. It looks like he doesn't bring Absalom in and Amnon in and address this in some judicial manner of justice. And I'm not sure exactly what that would be in this case. But the bottom line is, He's angry, and there's no notation whatsoever of him doing anything. But then verse 22 says, Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon. So here he is again, just going on as if nothing had happened. And then a very powerful phrase, which is only in the Bible, one other place, verse 23. Now it came about after two full years. That's the phrase in Hebrew. In Hebrew it says, two years of days. That's the phrase that's used in Genesis when the butler is restored and Joseph says, remember me when you come before Pharaoh and make mention of my name and get me out of this place. And the next chapter begins then after two full years or two years of days. It means every day is going by slowly. Two years of days. He's just counting off the days. Absalom is now waiting and waiting and waiting to bring his vengeance. But the Bible tells us vengeance belongs to God. Absalom is not knowing the character of God. Even Plato understands that if we're wronged and we want justice, that must come from somewhere outside of us. There must be a just being. And that just being will have his justice. Plato taught that. Well, God says, yes, I am like that, by the way. I am like that. And my justice is far beyond your justice. God says to Absalom, I am more concerned for Tamar than you could ever be. I'm more concerned for my glory that was trampled underfoot by Amnon than you could ever be. And I will deal with Amnon. You do not need to. I will deal with him. But Absalom, verse 23 now, it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor. So, sheep shears is a big festival time. And it's a big party time. Party time also means the uh, wine could be flowing. And so, he's looking for an opportunity, maybe in some way, maybe he hasn't really made it perfectly clear yet, but he's wanting to have this big party, and at some point, he's going to manage that Amnon's going to meet his end. Is, how, is what that's really all about there. But what we see here is that he is very much walking in the flesh. Perhaps that's all he's ever done. But don't lose sight of the fact that he has been next to David on numerous occasions worshiping God on the Sabbath. Absalom 
and Amnon on numerous occasions on the Sabbath were next to King David, worshiping the Most High God. But here's the reality. But he becomes fixated, and that's what verses 22 and 23 mean. He's become fixated. The Tenth Commandment, covenant, he can't give it up. Just as, listen, just as Amnon was fixated on Tamar, now Absalom is fixated on Amnon. That Tenth Commandment has more application than we ever thought. And it has application in our lives from past, this past week and from the week, God willing, that's yet to come. And so verses 24 through 29, he plots the execution and he brings it about. And death comes. Amnon dies. Verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. But then it says this, verse 30. Now it was while they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And David goes into mourning and immediately rips his clothes and everything. We see here confusion, gross exaggeration, and untruth. And that happens a lot today. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. That's happening all around us today on television. The phrase for it is fake news. But it doesn't have to be fake news. It's just being inundated with politics and various opinions and 24-7 news and things of that nature. And people become overwhelmed. And they hear bits and pieces. Or they hear little fragments or little things on the internet. And they begin to run crazy like Chicken Little. And that's what happens here. But there is a reasoned response. There is a reasoned response. And that's in verses 32. Look at this. Jonadab, and it identifies him. The son of Shimea, David's brother. It's the same Jonadab. Now, I want you to hear this well. Jonadab has been a mighty warrior and worthy, I'm sure, of thanksgiving and of the appreciation and respect of the nation of Israel for being a mighty warrior. He's a bad counselor to Amnon. And now with David, he steps forth with a voice of reason. He investigates this, looks into it a little more carefully and says, well, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's don't jump to conclusions here. My point is that counselors can have good days and bad days. And we ourselves must know the character of God, the commands of God, and the providences of God in such a way that we're able to receive good counsel. Do we know that this person is giving us good counsel? I'm telling you, if you have a question about warfare, Jonadab is probably a good man to ask. And if you start panicking like Chicken Little, Jonadab might settle you down a little bit and say, hey, let's, let's wait, let's investigate this, let's think about this a little bit. But here Amnon is the same man. Amnon is lusting after his sister. And Jonadab hatches a plot involving lying and everything else. We need to be cautious who our counselors are. But here in this case, he calms David down and gives David a little bit of uh, encouragement. He says in verse 32, Do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men. Uh, for Amnon alone is dead because the intent of Absalom has determined this. And so it's a reasoned response with some investigation and some evaluation. We ourselves need to do that. Finally, verse 37 at the end says, Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud. So he becomes an exile. Absalom becomes an exile. And you'd think it might end there. Those of you who read the Bible already know it doesn't. He flees and it says this, David mourned for his son every day. You might think he's mourning for Amnon. He's not. The later chapters here will tell you he's mourning for Absalom. He's mourning for Absalom. Verse 39, the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. He wants to be restored. He has great affection for Absalom, and he's going to do some very foolish things later on. Well, the name of the sermon was Sin is Lurking, and we see that all through this chapter. It's also Christ is reigning. Christ has mastered sin. God says to Cain, sin is lurking or crouching at the door, and you must master it. But Christ has mastered sin in his life by going through and submitting himself to his parents. He's mastered sin by enduring the temptation, not only the wilderness temptation, but other temptations that he encountered. He has mastered sin by his teaching 
and he is correcting wrong teaching. He has mastered sin by suffering persecution and glorifying his Father. He has mastered sin on the cross in taking the sins of his people upon himself. He has mastered sin in his disciples abandoning him, and he knows what that's like. And he's mastered sin in the resurrection. Christ is every time what a true man should look like. When we see Amnon and Absalom and others failing us, we can always go back and look to Christ and see what true manhood looks like. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. With regeneration, there is a new heart. In this passage, it does not occur, it doesn't appear, that Absalom and Amnon have that new heart. They are walking in the flesh. And Romans says you can tell if somebody's a believer or not. Because if they're a believer, they're going to be led by the Spirit. They're going to be walking by the Spirit. If they're not, they're going to be doing things in the flesh. And we can see that in our own lives as well. How we respond to others will help us see where we are. In Matthew 12, Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit. How we respond in difficult situations is going to help us see where we are. Amen. If you'll stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.